0: Morning. Well, what do y'all want to talk about? We got a lot of directions we can go. I mean, dangers of marrying your brother's wife, problems when you party too hard, um, things that happen when you mess with the king. I don't know. We can go a lot of different directions. Um, but uh, in response of last week's sermon, where I talked about the offense of Jesus and the offense of the gospel, and how necessary it was to be open to that offense, um, I got so many responses from you guys, responses um, that you, for the first time in your life, were willing to go there with family members, were willing to go there with neighbors and friends, and you, you asked for, for me to pray for courage. I mean, probably six, seven, eight of you reached out and said, hey, I just really feel convicted and compelled to, to dive into that, and, and the offense is really the call to repent. Um, so, this week, what I want to do is I want to, I want to double click on that. I want to drill down a little deeper on, on what, what this is all about, the, the offensive message of a life of repentance. About eight years ago, uh, I, had a, I had a friend uh, that had slipped into some sin. Um, he was going forward with the with decision uh, to kind of play house with his girlfriend, who was not a believer. He was a believer. And not only that, they, they had chosen that they were gonna they were gonna go ahead and buy a house together in Atlanta. And um, and and he really what what he indicated to me is that he wanted the benefits of commitment without a covenantal sacrificial union in marriage. And and to be honest, he he just knew better. I knew that he knew better. And so I'm sitting there at Starbucks with him, and he's telling me about what he's going forward with and I think he's kind of expecting me to be decided, excited, and I'm in one of these moments where it's like, it's kind of like a fake smile, you know, you're kind of like, eh. and, and inside, like your, your stomach's kind of churning, because you're like, I know this is not right, but I don't know what to do. I mean, after all, I'm not put together. Who am I to mention this to him? I mean, he could say the same thing about me in other areas, right? The, the areas in my life that aren't, that aren't put together, that aren't all buttoned up you know, was it loving for me to, to stay silent? Was the Lord calling me to say something? I mean, how could I call his sin out? Maybe you've been in the same place with others uh, before. And so I sat by quietly until we got to the door of that Starbucks, and I, and I grabbed his arm, and I, I looked at him in the eyes, and I said, um, I love you, and I want you to know this. I am I'm concerned, I'm scared with how comfortable you are living and walking in sin. And, and he, he, he shook my hand off, and he, he walked to his car without saying goodbye to me, and he drove off. And in that moment, here's what I thought. Well, there goes another friend. And then, then the next morning I woke up and I thought, you know, I'm so judgmental. Should I have even said anything to him? I don't even know if it was the right move to, to bring that up. Until that afternoon, less than 24 hours later, I got a call from him. And I could tell he had, he had been emotional, and he said, you are so right. I didn't know how far I had gone off the tracks until you, until you, until you told me that, until you called me out on that. You see, he, was, he, he ended up lo- he backed out of the, buying the house. He ended up breaking off the relationship. He lost $30,000 in earnest money. You know what I told him? I said, you'll not miss that $30,000 10 years from now, because living in sin is a lot more costly than that. And, um, and two years later, I had the beautiful opportunity— Um, to um, walk with his uh, his fiancée, walk with, with the two of them through premarital counseling and to officiate their wedding. And it was just a beautiful picture of redemption. But I can tell you this, I was terrified to step into it with him. You see, the message of repentance has never been easy to hear. There are so many obstacles that the enemy seeks to place in the way, obstacles within and obstacles without, for us to be a repentant community that call others to it. If we really love one another, we have to believe that we are the ones that have to change and call others to that change. Because who else is going to do it if your brothers and sisters in Christ will not? I love what Jude 22 says. Here's how he says it. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. When's the last time the Lord called you to snatch somebody out of the fire? When's the last time somebody snatched you out of the fire in a similar way? situation. Yet our world says that's not loving. Just let them burn, right? That's basically what the world says. Fire snatchers. It sounds like a good band name though, doesn't it? You heard it here first. Here's our big idea for today. Again, it's just going to be a, it's not light, repentance is not lighthearted, but it's the only way to be made right with God. Here's our big idea for today. People of repentance call others to repentance. People of repentance call others to repentance. If you're a note taker, here's where I'm going today. Uh, The first point is this, is that we're going to look at a case study of a repentant leader. We're going to look at John the baptizer's life. We're going to look at what repentance cost him. Uh, Second thing we're going to look at this is the components of a repentance lifestyle. Like What is repentance? What is it not? And then the third thing is this, how do we build a culture Of how do we build a culture of repentance in our community as a church? So let's dig into that together. Um, Let me give you a little context of what's happening here. If you got your Bible, let's go back to Mark 6 here. Uh, Mark 6 14. um, King Herod, the scriptures say this King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. In other words, Jesus' fame was rising. John the Baptizer's fame had been up for a long time. He was way more popular than Jesus until he died. Um, but King Herod had started to hear about the things that Jesus was teaching. He had started to hear about the things that, uh, uh, that Jesus was doing and the miracles that he was performing that were all pointing to his divinity. Um, and some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That was the, the greatest prophet they could recall, right? That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, 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 he's Elijah. And others said, no, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. I've seen this before. You see, just to give you a little context about what was happening in the Roman Empire at the time, Herod the Great was a vassal king under under Caesar. He was a, he was a kind of a, 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 a like a lower-level king in kind of the, the hierarchy. And he ruled from 37 to 4 B.C., right? He was, Herod the Great was the guy that... Um, that basically persecuted all Jewish little boys when, was, when Jesus was born because of the, the prophecies that had come about. And upon his death, that kingdom was divided into four parts. Uh, if you ever read the word tetrarch, it means four parts. Uh, and it was given to each of Herod's four sons. So Herod Antipas was the leader over the region of Galilee. He's the Herod that Jesus uh, faces right before he's crucified, right? He's, he's the Herod uh, that we're reading about today that, that beheads John the Baptist. And so what we know is that the Herods encapsulate or bookend Jesus' life on the earth. So this Herod, Herod Antipas, had become somewhat friends with John the Baptizer, uh he was like a secret admirer. Like he he liked, it's kind of like how Pilate was. Like he kind of admired, but he but it was too costly to actually follow uh Jesus. It was too co- costly to actually believe what John was saying for Herod. Um and, and the people were astonished, really, with the recovery of the prophetic office. you got to remember, like, contextually, there had been 400 years of silence. It's called the intertestamental period, where, where really the, the people of God had not heard from God. And so John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness, you know, eating locusts and honey, and he looks like a homeless man, but he's proclaiming the gospel with, with authority. And people are listening to him, and their lives are being changed. He's preparing the way of Jesus. And then Mark uh, recounts in the middle of his telling of the story of Jesus what happened to John the Baptist. And that's what we see here. So we kind of see a case study of, of a repentant leader here. And John the Baptist's entire ministry was calling people to repent so that they could receive the kingdom of God and follow Jesus. It was a ministry of preparation for him. And what we notice is this, is that repentance has always been a part of how you and I are made right with God. Because he's holy and and we're we're the ones, and we're not holy, we're the ones that have to change to be in fellowship with God, which is his design. It's the whole reason he sent Jesus to the earth was because he wanted to be in unity, in union with us. So you think about all the way back from Noah's call. Noah, Noah's call was a call to repent. He, he told people repent, that, that a flood's coming, right? Uh, that judgment's gonna be poured out on sin. Get in this boat. He gave the call to everyone. Only his family comes, right? The flood, uh, the judgment comes. You think about uh, the call that Jonah gave to the city of Nineveh. It was a call to repent. Or David's repentance whenever he's found out and caught in his sin. It's all over the Bible, and it should be all over the church, it's how we're made right with God. Um, and, and part of the problem today is, is that we've 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 perpetuated a version of Christianity that doesn't start with repentance. We've said that we can kind of do X, Y, and Z, and you can be right with God. But unless your sin is paid for, you are not right with God. And so that, that's what I want to look at today. In in John's story, um, people were People were always trying to elevate him, and he was always shifting that glory. If you're reading John 3.30, um, people would try to elevate John because of this message and the authority that he proclaimed the message with. And he would say things like this, you know, he must increase, I must decrease. Because he knew himself to be a sinful man who wasn't worthy. He even said this in, in Matthew 3.11. He says, I'm not even worthy to carry Jesus' dirty sandals, Right? And so, so fast forward to the story that's told about John today, uh, and, and we see the message of repentance wasn't popular with everyone, but John was an equal opportunity offender. And so what he did in, in, in his life is he, you know, he took this relationship that he had with Herod the Great, and he used it and utilized it as an opportunity to proclaim the truth even to the highest places of the land, and what that cost him was is that he was put in prison. What we know about John's life is that he was probably in prison the last two years of his life, uh, and and they weren't all great years for John. In in Mark chapter um, six, what we're looking at today, we see that, that that what had happened to him is is that he called out Herod for marrying his brother Philip's wife, and he says it's not lawful, right? And here's what we know about the power of the law, even in unbelievers, is it crushes you. It crushes you to the point where it shows you that there's no way to live apart from God's mercy, and so he doesn't. He doesn't say, "Oh, you know, John's not a, or uh, Herod's not a believer, so I'm not going to share that truth with him." No, he says, "Here's what God requires, Herod. You're not right with God." He's he's telling him the most loving thing that he can, and then he gets thrown into prison. And we read in Luke chapter seven that he starts to get discouraged when he's in prison. Because he's left there for about two years, and he he ends up saying this, and he sends messengers to say this to Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or should we keep looking, right? Are you the one to come, Jesus, or should we keep looking? Because my life doesn't look like you're the one who is to come, because I'm still in prison, and I proclaim your truth, and it hasn't helped my situation at all. And then Jesus sends a message back to John in prison, uh, and it it says this right here. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard, messengers. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one, John, who is not offended by me. You see, we can't always prescribe What redemption looks like and feels like when you're going to proclaim the message of repentance. The conditions aren't always favorable for the messengers. They're not always going to be favorable for us either. But it's still worth it because it's the only way to be made right with God. I love that John struggles to believe that Jesus is who he really says that he is when his circumstances don't match up with the message that he's proclaiming. It's because this, for all of us, a life of repentance is costly. Here's why. An actively repentant lifestyle requires this, simultaneous humility, presence, and truth. And I'm going to come back to this toward the end of the sermon, but humility because you need the same thing that you're proclaiming to other people. Like, you're no better. You don't, you don't proclaim this truth from a pr- position of superiority, but from a position of need and desperation. That's why it requires humility to live on mission. From, a, a, from a, a, a presence, right, to stay present with people who sin differently than you because you need the same grace that you're calling them to receive. And then truth, right? It's e- it would have been easy for me that day in that Starbucks to just let him walk out the door. And God may have turned him around a different way, but he chose me. And it was scary, guys, it's scary to proclaim the truth. Some of you have kids who are walking in sin, and you are terrified of pushing them away. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that it's cut and dry on how you proclaim the truth to them, but if you pursue your own humility, you stay present with them, and you, you seek to let them know the truth, we have to believe that we're honoring God in those situations. And it's so challenging to do it, and it's so costly. But if we don't do it, who's going to do it, Church? John has to be honest about his own doubt and his sin and stay present in his own struggle and speak the truth. And this is exactly what you and I are called to do. Now, those of you who like scary, gruesome movies would love for me to spend a lot of time on that today, uh, on, the, on the, the execution of John the Baptist. I'm not going to do that today because it is pretty gruesome and it's very sad but I just want to explain a little bit about what happened, and we're going to kind of move on to talk a little bit more about repentance. But um, what happens is Herod throws this huge rave. He throws a party. Um, he gets way too drunk, and he overpromises something to Herodias' daughter as she is erotically dancing at the party. It is a sensuous party. It's a scene. And he basically says, ask anything, and I'll do it, because he wants to display his power and control. And she asks for John the baptizer's head on a platter, because her mom hated John for the truth that he proclaimed, and in his own pride, he keeps his word. He could have said, "No, I'm not going to do that." But because he's so prideful and he doesn't want to appear to be weak, he says, "Fine, go ahead and kill him." And then the scriptures say he's grieved, but he's not grieved enough to actually change his mind, right? And so, uh, and so, just like that, John the Baptist is dead. His head's on a platter at a party. He's a mere party favor. But we know that his life counted for so much more than that, right? Just like any martyr who's ever died for the cause of Christ. What a historian, one historian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You and I aren't here without people who are willing to give their lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of calling others to repent. And we don't get to dictate how people respond. It's awful and it's the this situation is the epitome of what's possible in a sinful world. Absolutely no regard for human life and the image of God. And Herod will give an account for what he did to John when Christ returns. And you and I will be with John in eternity and we'll celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, John's just trying to lead Herod to eternal life. He's not trying to be this judgmental follower of Jesus like so many of us have tried with our friends and family and neighbors. Because we're called to simultaneously live in humility because of our own need. Stay present with others in their sin and ours. And speak the truth and love the best that we can. And it's such a hard call. But friends, the ministry of John the Baptist is the ministry of the church. Jesus, uh, This would be said about Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4. When it talks about the future of the church. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And friends... The biblical church has not stopped preaching that message. And so that's what I want to lean into today. So let's look at the components of what a repentant lifestyle is um, and what it's not. C.S. Lewis wrote an allegory that I talk about often here. It's such a unique uh, writing and Vantage Point. It's about how evil hunts Christians, and it's called the Screwtape Letters. It's written from the perspective of the enemy, uh, where this senior-level demon named Uncle Screwtape is counseling and leading and giving guidance to this junior-level demon named Wormwood. And, uh, and, and basically, he's trying, to, he's trying to teach Wormwood on how to take Christians out of the battle. And here's what he says about repentance. He says, as long as a man does not convert it into action, it doesn't matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. Wallow in it write a book about it, that is often the excellent way of sterilizing the seeds which the Heavenly Father plants in the human soul. Do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm the cause of evil if it is kept out of his will, if it's kept out of his actions and his behaviors. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will ever be able to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to even feel. Wow, right? I mean, but it's true what he's talking about. He's talking about how we become numb in our sin and desensitized to our depravity in this world. Many of us have been wrestling through our sin for so long that we can become disheartened in the battle of our flesh. And because of our own battle with sin, we think, there's no way in the world I can ever call anybody out on their own sin. And that's the lie that we have to uproot today, because if that was the precondition for living on mission with Jesus, none of us would be on mission ever, right? And so, let me let you in on a little secret. Only desperate, needy sinners can share the hope of Jesus with desperate, needy sinners. That's what he has called each and every one of us to. So, um, you know, we are a confessional church, and what that means is that there are historic church documents that have kind of shaped our theology and how we practice ministry because we believe that the Lord has gifted people over time to help make our lives easier as a church. One of those documents is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And chapter or, um, the, the 87th Catechism of the Shorter Catechism talks about what repentance unto life is. And there's really four main elements that I want to share with you today. And they are this, if you're a note taker. As we think about what repentance is Uh, The first one is this Is that uh, the precondition of a repentant life Is an awareness of sin The second one is this Is there is an even greater apprehension Of God's mercy The third one is there's a grief and hatred Over that sin that's revealed And the fourth is there's a turning to God In pursuit of heartfelt obedience And so I just want to lean into those for a few minutes To not assume that we know What we're talking about when we hear that word repentance Um in this life, it doesn't take long for us to realize that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be in our own lives and in this world. Aware- I think awareness of sin is the most overlooked way that God is gracious to his church. I mean, Romans 2, 4 says this. It says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Yet many people think, if I just don't have to repent, my life would be great. Like, that's the definition of maturity for most of us, Right? Is, that it is, is, is independence, not dependence. But the Bible's definition for maturity is deepening dependence upon the grace and mercy of God. Because what happens when that's not your definition is you try to mute awareness of sin. You try to silence it, right? You try to think, as long as there's no sin in my life, I must be doing good. But the problem is there's always gonna be sin in your life. The question is, are you aware of it? And that awareness can come in lots of different ways uh, for us, Right? That awareness can come from reading God's word, hearing God's word preached uh, through our, and our conscience that's informed by that word convicts us, right? That's the kindness of God. That awareness can come from someone else uh, calling us out like I did my friend that day, like friends do with me all the time. It doesn't matter how you become aware of your sin, but that you do. That's the key to walking a lifestyle of repentance. And that awareness is crippling to us unless we have the mercy of God in our lives. And because we have God's mercy in our life, we're not crippled by conviction of sin. So awareness of sin is the precondition for walking a lifestyle of repentance. The second thing is this, is that there's an apprehension of God's mercy in our life. So at the same time that the Holy Spirit is revealing sin to us, as Christians, he's also making us aware of the abounding mercy of God that always wins. The fact that God is not giving us what we want is what God's mercy is all about. You know, if you think about this, you know, after Nathan was used as an instrument, the prophet Nathan was used as an instrument to call David out in his sin, here's how the mercy of God worked in David's life. Psalm 51 is the is the description of what happened in Nathan's, or in David's life as he as he repented, he says, have mercy on me, O God. That's the first thing he starts with because that is what is required when you become aware of your sin. You need God's mercy. And that mercy, according to Psalm 51, is according to the steadfast love of God, that he loves us too much to leave us where he finds us. He says, according to your abundant mercy, your overflowing mercy, blot out my transgressions. Don't deal with me on the basis of what I've created and cultivated with my life. He says, wash me thoroughly from this iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, what we see is that it's God's unchanging love that leads him to share his mercy with us. And that mercy that God has sent for us in our sin is that he washes us clean from our sin. That the scriptures say that, that, that he casts our sin as far as the, as the east is from the west, Like, that's the good news of the gospel. And it's not like this. I think sometimes we think that the mercy of God is kind of like, you know, God's just printing new money to pay for our sin, right? That's not what he's doing. God bankrupted himself to pay for your sin. He sent his his only son, all that he had, because he loved you so much. Yet we are so fearful to apprehend his mercy and confess our sin. It's the only way that we'll ever live with his delight and his love on our lives is if we're willing to confront our sin and willing to be overwhelmed by his great mercy. And that growing awareness of his deep mercy produces two things in us, hatred of our sin and a desire to obey him. The third thing is this, is that a grief and hatred over the revealed sin is kind of what happens next. Awareness of sin and even deeper apprehension of God's mercy is the only thing that can help us to actually see sin for what it is. If not, we'll always be muting sin or muting mercy. But what we're called to do as Christians is to turn the volume up to 11 on both of those, right? All the way up. We're we're not afraid to see all of our sin because his mercy always wins when we see it correctly. And so what that leads us to do is that sin loses its power through the relief of mercy. When when your conscience and your heart is relieved because God's mercy wins, you're not afraid to see your sin. And we can finally be honest about the sin that is in our lives because we're no longer afraid of its consequences. Most of our lives are constructed about concealing the consequences of our sins, If you really believe that God is who he says he is, you don't have to do that anymore, friend. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. A lot of us, friends, have only experienced worldly grief over our sin. And worldly grief is the awareness of sin with no relief from its consequences. And who wants to face that? No one. The enemy is so miserable that he desires to make you live your whole life without an awareness and an experience of God's mercy. Friend, may you never live another second of your life hating yourself and others because of your sin, but instead hating sin because God's mercy is present. That's the difference in the church. That's what makes us bold. It makes us bold when we're not afraid of the consequences of our sin because we know that his mercy is more. And the fourth thing that this leads us to is that we actually turn to God in a desire to pursue heartfelt obedience. So I think so many of us, including myself, misunderstand obedience sometimes. We look at our sin and we see the endless gap between who we are and what God requires and we say, it's no use. I'm just going to avoid that all together. You see, but here's what we misunderstand about obedience. Obedience is not just what the Lord requires, it's who he is. So when we desire to have a pure heart, when we desire to live, find out, when we desire to please him with our lives, what we are really saying is that we want God. That we don't just want what he can do for us, but we want him. And this isn't me legalistically wanting you to obey because I too struggled deeply to obey God. I mean, just this last week, I made a comment that I shouldn't have that left my mouth and I had to repent over it. It's one of those comments that it gets out and you're kind of like, come back, come back, come back, right? You're trying to catch it, but it left. But I'm not concerned anymore because I repented, right? And his mercy, he's promised that his mercy will cover that. So I want us to close out by applying all this to our own lives today. How can we pursue this kind of life together? What does a culture of repentance look like in our community? I think there are three things that we must pursue, at least three things that I wanna close out on. And the first one is this, is that if you really wanna pursue this, you have to first take inventory of your own holiness. It's this idea of the kind of the plank and the, the speck mentality. Some of you are in the medical profession, you're, you know, you physician's assistants or nurses or doctors, and this, 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 uh, this illustration uh, will, will, will bode well with you, but when a surgeon comes in to perform a surgery, when he comes into the room, he's got his plan, you're in the room, he's got all of his stuff, what is the first thing that he does? First thing that he does, he scrubs up and he washes his own hands, right? And he puts, puts everything on, he does, makes every precaution to not infect that patient, Right? Um, And and he's doing this because he's assuming that unless he first pays attention to his own condition, he has nothing to offer that patient, right? It's the exact same thing in the Christian community. We must first pay attention to our own hearts. I think so many people are unwilling to live bold lives of repentance and call others to it because we're not looking at our own hearts first. Matthew 7 says it like this in in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eyes, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, I think what we would read into it today is this. Don't even worry about the speck in your brother's eye, right? And you can forget the log if you're not worried about the speck. Jesus doesn't say don't worry about the speck. He says the speck matters. Church, the speck matters in the church. But the log has to come first. That's what's significant about a repentant community. And friend, I want you to know this, that you are a gift to our church and our family here. We need one another to pursue holiness together, to keep drawing near to Jesus. But we will never pursue it if we're not active in our own repentance. And here's my prayer, that you and I would become, I don't know, loggers for Jesus, right? There's another band name, right? Keep going here. You know, that our first move in community would be that we're actually addressing our own wayward condition first. So that we can live faithfully in community with others. And we can look squarely into our own hearts because we don't feel the shame with our awareness of sin because mercy outweighs it. And we can simultaneously stay present with other people as we seek his mercy together. What needs to be uprooted in your heart today? What is it that is sidelining you, sidelining us, from being active in the culture of repentance in this church? Because the truth is, I need you to repent so that you can help me repent. That's what we all need. I need you to repent so that you can help me repent. Because if you don't repent, you can't help me repent. The the second thing is this, is that we have to trust others to care for you. The next thing is is that we have to be approachable, friends. Um, Some of us are so buttoned up that no one knows our struggle because we keep people on the front porch of our hearts instead of letting them down in the basement. What would it look like for you to turn the light on in the basement and invite a few people down with you, right? To pursue holiness together. Because if we really want to chase Jesus, we will surround ourselves with people in whom our holiness is their top priority. Do you have people in your life where your holiness is their top priority? That's what it means to be the church. But instead, we silently pass like ships in the night, struggling in our sin together, and therefore holiness becomes a dirty word to us instead of an invitation to a life with Jesus. A pursuit of holiness that's not propelled by God's mercy is the thing that must be disavowed. I agree with you. But we don't talk about holiness much because we don't apprehend his mercy much. 1 Peter 1.16 says this, be holy because I am holy. We hear that and we think, man, that's the law right there. I can never be holy. So I can never be close to God. Well, that's not true. It's not a judgment to us. It's an invitation to more of God, to the best way to live. In our text today, John was calling Herod to the best way to live, but his heart wouldn't receive it. And because of that, he suffered. Unless we genuinely believe that, a pursuit of holiness will always leave us filled with shame. Ultimately, what are we we after? What do we desire as God's people? It's to see the Lord. Because we know we see the Lord, our lives will be made complete, will be fulfilled. Hebrews 12 says this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What needs to happen in the way that we present ourselves to others to get People off the front porch and down into the basement with us. I'm not saying that everyone deserves a pass down to the basement, but somebody does. That's one of the benefits of living under the mercy of God. And so many of us live without those benefits being applied to our lives. And so we never apply the redemption of Christ to our walk with Jesus. And it's the saddest thing in the world because we live with shame and guilt and fear. The third thing we see is this that we've got to pursue is this boldly pursue the holiness of others. I love what C.H. Spurgeon says. He says, Repentance must dig the foundations, but holiness shall erect the structure and bring forth the top stone. Repentance is the clearing away of the rubbish of the past temple of sin. Holiness builds the new temple with which the Lord our God shall inherit. Repentance and desires after holiness can never be separated. This why this is why Paul says this in Colossians. He says, you got to take off the old man, repent, And you got to put on the new man, seek holiness, right? When when, when you try to seek the new man without repenting, you're building on top of something that's going to collapse anyway, right? But when you don't pursue the life of holiness and you just kind of repent, then you're not building anything, right? And so uh, we need each other to help us excavate the past temple of sin because the foundation runs way deeper than we're aware of, right? It runs so deep and it shows up in surprising places to us. Rebuke (laughs) is something that rarely happens in most Christians' lives, yet it happens all over the New Testament. I have good friends in this church, and that's pretty rare to be a pastor and actually have friends in your church. I don't know if you knew that or not. You can ask other pastors, they might lie to you, but it's true. Um, not, Not all of you have an invitation to the basement, but some of you do. Just this week, I was working out with Patrick and David on Monday morning. And Patrick rebuked me in my sin. And I was mad. I was like, man, I'm your boss. You can't say that to me. (laughs) And I was kind of joking a little bit, but it stung. It offended my heart. He loved me enough to tell me the truth. Later that day, I said, hey, man, I love you. Thank you for being willing to offend me, right? Because that's what it looks like to pursue holiness together. If you want a really rich community that gets deeper and deeper and deeper over time, Pursue one another's holiness. It changes everything, friends. Don't just pursue the Braves or your kids' schooling or your travel schedule or your latest Netflix binge. Get down in the basement and chase after each other's holiness. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.